Well, I am thrilled, thrilled to be able to be with you today to talk about Revelation, one of my favorite books. Uh, when it all came together, it was different than normal. And what I mean by that is, usually when Renee needs a sub for a sermon, he makes an appointment, he wants to sit down with you, he wants to go over the text and, and relay what he wants you to get across. Well, this time, it was a little odd. Uh, rather than the meeting, I just got a quick little email. Hey, can you preach on, you know, that weekend coming up? I thought, huh, this again is a bit odd. It's out of ordinary. And I thought, his, his cryptic nature here, his little subtle move, it wouldn't be because we were now getting into a more difficult part of Revelation, could it? <laughs> it wouldn't be because of the judgment text coming up, could it? Uh, and if you know my brother Mark, who is... Um, typically first out of the bullpen for subbing for Renee, Mark knows an awful lot about this little coincidence that when tough texts come up, Renee goes missing. For example, <laughs> for example, I mined the TLC sermon archive and I came up with actual sermon titles by Renee and by Mark to show you what I'm talking about. First, Renee, living for great purpose. Mark, living with loss. <laughs> Renee, the good life. Mark, why does God allow suffering and evil? <laughs> Renee, the hope experience. Mark, sailing into uncertainty. <laughs> Renee, seeing myself as God's child. Mark, when the facts are contrary to the promise. <laughs> Renee, the optimism factor. Mark, if you get nothing else, <laughs> and you'll be happy about it. And of course, Renee, every Easter Resurrection Day sermon. Mark, every crucifixion Good Friday. <laughs> Those are actual sermon titles. Now, I'm poking fun at Renee. He really doesn't duck stuff, but there is a, a little bit of a theme going on there. And again, um, my assigned text today for Renee are some of the judgment texts of Revelation. Not the most fun in the Bible, obviously but actually some that are very encouraging once we get into them. Uh, seriously, it, it's, it's not as bad as you think um, as far as the big picture. Uh, now, as we get into it, though, we have to remember something. Revelation, among all the books in the Bible, is the one we must most especially consider the context. Because if you dealt with Revelation, you can cherry-pick this and that and you can make it say anything you want. Pick up pro uh, popular prophecy books, and people make millions out of making this book say things. I just think, I don't think it ever was intended to say that. Again, you can make it say anything, kind of like how a clever editor took a very popular movie, chopped it up, moved it around, and made it say something totally different. Watch the screen. Thank you.
I think you see what I mean. You people are really odd. I mean, you're laughing at a horror movie. That's really kind of creepy. Well, you get the point. Context is everything, especially in Revelation. A few more Revelation reminders as we dive into this. A Revelation, the very first uh, verse starts off with this. The apoc apocalypse, that means revelation, of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It's, it means, apocalypse means to come back. If I had a big curtain here and I could open the curtain for you, it means to unveil. It means to reveal. That's all apocalypse or revelation means. And interestingly, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, not necessarily the end times. Most of us never even thought about that. I know I didn't for many, many years. So keep that in mind. This is more about Jesus than anything else. Also, Revelation makes more use of the Old Testament. Catch this now. Revelation has 404 verses total. Almost 300 of those verses make allusions to the Old Testament. What does that tell you? It tells us that if we don't consider the Old Testament origins that populate Revelation, we will be totally lost in trying to make sense of these crazy images and beasts and all of these wild things it talks about. So it's really helpful. In fact, it's a must to go to the Old Testament to figure out these cosmic disturbances. I mean, it talks about stars falling on the planet, which if you know anything about space and astronomy, you know that stars are a lot bigger than Earth. If one star hit us, it'd be like a basketball hitting a BB, right? It would be pretty much over. So that can't be literal. What is that talking about? Well, it's talking about something we still do today. We talk about, as the Oscars are coming up, hey, that person's movie did well. Their star is rising. They're a star. But then also we say, oh, they're not doing so well in the box office. Their star is pretty much diminished. They're done in Hollywood. So we still say that about people today. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, in Revelation, to say that your star fell would mean that your country was going down or your leader was going down. In simple terms, if your star gets put out in Revelation, God is saying, I'm punching your lights out. You're done. And it's going to be well-deserved, as you'll see. So those are the things we need to look for and just remember as we go through Revelation. But here's the good news. Amongst all that judgment stuff and the bad stuff that we have to get into, Revelation is trying to impart hope, as we'll see today. It wants to impart hope for every one of us here, hope in the midst of whatever trial you're going through. It's not just about the global trials. And it has crazy numbers and, and things like seals and trumpets and bowls. What is that all about? Well, Revelation is 22 chapters long. Introduction chapter, seven churches, as Renee, chapters two and three. Chapters about worship. And then chapters six to 19, that's the meat of what scholars term the great tribulation chapters of Revelation. This is a time of terrible, terrible times. Now, most scholars believe this tribulation is talking about something yet future. Some believe this tribulation talked about in Revelation anyway is actually talking about something in the past, back at 70 AD when Rome just obliterated Israel and Jerusalem. Still others think it's not pointing to any specific time, 
But Revelation is saying, hey, Christian, whatever you're going through, whenever you're going through it, God's going to be there for you. You're going to suffer, but God's going to be greater than your suffering in the long run. And as a pastoral staff, we've decided the correct view is, well, we don't know. We, uh, we debate it in-house, and we have people in all three of those camps, by the way, and we get along just fine and, and don't split over that. Because more importantly, people, more importantly, you may have come today and said, I don't know, all this seven stuff, seals, trumpets, judgments, ugh. You don't know my life, Paul. I don't. But more importantly, I want you to know this today. This book is for you and me today. I mean, if you follow the news, you hear about shootings and viruses and ISIS and global things that where you just want to turn it off and say, no more, I've had it. And then you, if you're a, a person with feelings, you, you must think, God, do you care about these things? The world seems to be going crazy. Are you there, Lord? Do you care? And I know some of you probably think, you know, in light of all the global biggies out there that God has to pay attention to, does he care about my little problems compared to global ones? Especially living here in Santa Cruz, the land of comfort compared to the rest of the world? Or maybe you walked in today and you go, uh, I'm not comfortable, Paul. I've got a child that is wayward and causes me no end of pain. My marriage is on the rocks. It seems hopeless. My boss just seems to live to put me down. I never get promoted. Or maybe you're out of work altogether. Maybe that's it. Does God care about those things too in light of the big macro stuff? Yes. Revelation says yes to all of that. He cares, he's active, and he's doing something. We're gonna look at that today. It's gonna be very exciting. These images in the book of Revelation are really designed to give us encouragement. So here's our big idea today. The big idea is God is acting in history. And now watch this. He actually wants you and me to partner with him in bringing about change for good. He's acting in history, and he wants us to team up and make a difference. That's our big, big picture, big idea today. And we will get that today if we do what John did. Now, John is the author of this book. And in chapter 10, he's told to do something really bizarre. He's told, the voice from heaven says, John, I want you to eat this book. Wow. I don't know how much syrup or amount of seasoning you would need to eat a book. And do you boil it, barbecue? I don't know. But that seems just awful. Well, it's not literally intended to mean eat a book. What he's saying is this message, this revelation message, people, for all of us should be so embraced and digested in our hearts that it becomes part of our very nature. That is what John is told to do in eating it. That's what we're told to do in eating it. So are you hungry today? Yeah. Let's go eat this book. Well, like I said, there's a lot of sevens in this book. Uh, and I'll start with chapter 8, verse 1, which says, in your notes, you can follow along. It says, when he, this is John, or the, or the angel, opened up the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Now, wait a minute. Renee talked about the seven seals last time. Why are we going back? 
We're not really going back. This is one of these odd things about Revelation. Now watch this. Most scholars believe that when Revelation talks about its three big sets of judgments in the tribulation chapters, and those big three are the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. Most scholars believe that rather than being seven plus seven plus seven or 21 specific individual judgments, what Revelation is doing is, is telling the same thing repeated, in repeated fashion, just with different imagery for different impact. So when we get to these sevens, we're probably, we don't have to worry about well, how many are there and I'm getting lost with that one and that one. Don't worry about that. Just sit back and go, oh, God's using different pictures to tell the same thing that's about to happen. That's all this is. And this is not uncommon in the Bible. Uh, parallel tellings of things come up all the time. In fact, just with these bowls and trumpets, look at the screen. Do you see parallel things happening here? For example, with the trumpets, which we'll look most at today, it says the first trumpet affected the land or the earth. But guess what? The bowl, the first bowl does the same. The second of the trumpets, the second of the bowls affects the sea. The third of each affects the rivers and so on. Look at the last one. Seems to be talking about the end of the tribulation of each trumpet and bowl and the beginning of Christ's reign. And we're not even through the book of Revelation yet. How could it be the end? Here's the point. Revelation just tells the same thing over and over again with different pictures. That's all. And this is not so unfamiliar to us. Do you remember Pharaoh's dream? And I'm talking about the Pharaoh of Joseph's time. Remember, he goes to sleep one night and he has this dream that he cannot interpret. And what was the dream? He dreams that seven really healthy looking cows come out of the Nile. They are fat and ready. They are so good looking. But then following them are seven lean cows who eat the healthy cows. And he wakes up. He has no idea what this means. Then he has another dream. This time, seven heads of, of, of wheat come up, and they're healthy and full. But then those seven heads are followed by seven lean, scorched heads of grain that eat the healthy grain. And he wakes up. What was going on here? Well, even kids put this together. They go, oh, this is one singular story told two different ways. First seven cows, then seven heads of grain, but they're telling the same thing. And we all know the story. It was seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt, followed by seven years of famine. Not two different times, one. Two different ways of telling one thing. Revelation here has three of telling one thing, the tribulation period. So that is not something we're unfamiliar with. We get that from the Bible. Also, if you went to Egypt during those days, you wouldn't think literally there were seven giant cows roaming around, right? You'd, you would know this was a story that was symbolic to make a point. And seven or 10 or 12, when you read these numbers in Revelation, stop and go, oh, I've seen this seven before. I've seen this 10 before, this 12. What's going on here? Just very simply, these, these are numbers that are essentially saying, that they're, they're implying perfection and completion. 
So if God says, I'm going to do that thing sevenfold, he's not necessarily going to do it seven ways. He's saying it's going to be done perfectly, completely, and exactly how I want it. That's the point of the sevens, the tens, and the twelves. So don't worry about the numbers. Just realize, oh, God's doing this exactly as he intended. But first, some good news. In in chapter 8, verse 1 again, I absolutely love this, and you are too. I can't wait to get to it. Watch this. Before judgment comes, verse 1 of chapter 8 says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. What is this half hour pause all about? Well, our first key image gives us the clue. It's a golden censer that is seen in the vision. And what does it do? It reveals, men and women, that your prayers matter. No matter who you are or how crazy your world is, this image indicates that your prayers matter. How do I know this? Follow along as the verses go on. It says, silence in heaven for a half hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel who had a golden censer came and stood before the altar. This is in the throne room of God. He was given much incense to offer. What's in this thing? The prayers of all of God's people. And he takes this censer, it like has a burning ember in it, and it gives off you know, aroma. And he, the angel takes it and he casts it down onto planet Earth in the image. What is that saying? It's saying three phenomenal things that have blown me away this week as I've revisited this. First, silence in heaven for a half hour. Why? Your prayers, it just gives me chills. Your prayers cause a standstill in heaven. Let me say that again. Your prayers cause a standstill in heaven. And not only that, when they're cast to the earth, that means they're affecting historical events. They're changing history. And not only that, they're in the throne room of God Almighty. Men and women, never, ever, ever give up or think that your prayers don't matter. This this text is explicit. Your prayers change history. Your prayers stop heaven. Your prayers change things. Now, some of you feel like, yeah, Paul, but you don't know me. I pray and pray and pray, and it's like they just don't ever get outside the ceiling of the church here or my house or wherever. I know that that's an honest, real Christian experience that every Christian, great or small, has always felt. But this text is clear. In God's good time, your prayers are going to have their day and they are going to change history. Remember Abraham when he was worried about his his dear uh, loved one in a city that God's about to destroy, the city of Sodom. He gets word that God has finally had enough after hundreds of years of the city just doing evil things. And God's going to act. But Abraham has a loved one there. So he goes before God and he says, God, far be it from you, as he says, to destroy a city if that city has righteous people in it. You wouldn't do that, would you? And God says, no, 
And so Abraham says, if there's only 50 people in that city, God, will you hold back? And God says, yes. And Abraham says, well, what if there's 40? How about 35? And God says, okay, okay, I'll hold back. So Abraham gets emboldened here. He says, okay, God, how about 20? How about 15? And God says, okay, I won't destroy for that little amount. So Abraham now in his last big pitch, he's got his courage up and he says, Lord, all right, don't get upset now, but what if there are only 10 righteous people in Sodom? Surely you won't destroy it for them, will you? And God says, no, Abraham, for 10, I will not destroy it. And Abraham's like, yes. But then he goes into the city and he only finds four righteous people. But guess what? God gets them out. God saves the four. And what's the moral of the story? The moral is people haggle with God. It pays to haggle with God. He does. I'm serious. It's no coincidence that God started in a Middle Eastern culture where you haggle for everything. In fact, you disrespect a Middle Eastern merchant if you go up and say, here, I'd like to pay for that. And they go, no, no, what are you talking about? They want to haggle with you or it's disrespectful. Even if you get a better deal than what you're offering, that's the way they work. And so he's saying, haggle with him. I mean, God doesn't want us men and women to always be people who say, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I'm sorry, I got into Bill Clinton there for a minute there, but I'm, <laughs> that was not intentional. My point is, God does not want us to remain babies and pray. He wants us to haggle. Those of you that know the P90X workout system, their big word is, come on, people, you got to bring it. Well, God wants us to bring it in our prayers. He wants that passion. That's what he wants. And why is that? Because as Walter Wink tells us, history belongs to the intercessors, Christians who pray, those who believe and pray the future into being. History does not belong to the powerful or the wealthy or the rulers or the armies or the corporations in the global media empires. History belongs to the intercessors. In fact, history, intercessing, is what Jesus is doing right now. It's Christ Jesus who died, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who right now intercedes for us. Now you think about that. Jesus spent three years setting up his kingdom and salvation for us. He has spent the last two millennia at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. You think that's important? Yeah. What does this tell us? Men and women, history belongs to the intercessors. That's a fancy word for people that pray. In fact, 2 Peter actually has this crazy verse that I don't fully understand, but I love it. It says that we Christians who pray actually, catch this now, actually speed God's coming again. What? Now, God knows when he's coming again. How do we affect that? But it says that we speed it along. How? By our prayers. Now, truth be told, who knows what your prayers have done for loved ones? Who knows how many people you've turned from a sin or saved from a bad decision? Or who knows how much grace your prayers have been dispensed on a life and turned it and you never saw that turn in this life, you're just not going to see it? We don't know. 
But this is what we do know. History belongs to the intercessors. Prayer changes history. Now you might be saying, Paul, I, I'm not very good at prayer. I don't even know what to do. I just blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you know, I just wander. Well, here's what I do very simply to help keep myself focused in prayer. I pray through the Bible. I just read it through and I pause and pray when things come up. If you just open your Bible, read through it, you will have every situation and everyone's need you can think of come up. They're all there. And it'll keep you guided and keep you going through. I mean, imagine going to coffee with somebody every day and all they ever did was sort of in a monologue, they just wandered about, well, yeah, grandma's not well again, the dog's lost, and Jesus helped me with my homework and the car's not running. Like, you would not go to coffee with them anymore because they're just stuck. Men and women don't get stuck. Use the word and let God's word guide your prayers. It'll revolutionize stuff for you. All right, well, the next image that we're coming across now in this judgment text are the trumpets. What does this mean? This is the tough part. It means judgment is coming. Men and women, no matter how crazy or evil the world becomes, God the judge is going to act. Just a couple highlights from the text you see in your notes or on the screen. Watch for a theme here. It says, the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to sound them. And it talks about hail and fire mixed with blood. Uh, the land, a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. A third of the sea turned to blood and on and on and on. The stars, a third of the stars, etc., etc. Does this sound familiar, people? Pestilence, bugs, a third of the water turning to blood. Well, if you know the book of Exodus or you've seen the Prince of Egypt. <laughs> Most of you are that, I can see that, okay. You know this is talking about the Exodus. Now, why is this important? Because think about if you're a Christian in John's day. Rome has got you under the thumb. There is no hope. Rome's too powerful. Your country is enslaved. You can't break out of it, and you feel hopeless. And yet John's saying, wait a minute. Remember those things that happened in Exodus? I'm going to rekindle them for you now. Look at the screen as you see the things in Exodus that reappear in Revelation. And why does this happen? Why does he do this? Because if I'm a reader of Revelation and I'm downtrodden and I recognize the Exodus accounts brought back in, this would be a phenomenal boost for me. Why? Because I'd remember that just as when it seems so hopeless in Exodus that God still delivered them, so too is he going to deliver us in our trial. This would have just given them total hope, and it's supposed to give us hope too, men and women. Whatever your trial is, the God who beat the Egyptians and got his people out of slavery in the Exodus, the God whose people were under Rome's bondage in the first century, but then he got them out of that. That same God is saying, have patience. I work in history. And I'm here for you too. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this happen. That's what he's saying here. And men and women, you might feel like, man, I don't know. My wounds are, are beyond healing, aren't they? I don't know. Or, but remember, God is not going to waste your wounds. Think of our own Pastor Renee. 
He had a lot to complain about as a boy. Age four, he loses his father. As a teenager, he loses his stepfather. You must think, God, what do you got? You got it out for me? That's two dads. I'm not even 20. But think about what that did for Renee. Renee will tell you that that forced him to go to the only daddy that would never leave or forsake him or die. And Renee just bonded to that father. And men and women, I don't think Renee would be our pastor today had he not gone through that great trial. Because those of us that work with him, he has a walk and a way with God, a love that I envy because he's had no other choice. But it came through some suffering to get to that point. So God is not going to waste it. He won't waste yours either. Now, you might have seen a theme here in that text I just read, this fraction, a third, a third of this, a third of that, a third of this. What does that all mean? Well, critically, it means God's judgment is limited. This is probably not a literal number. It just means a significant minority. But God is saying, I'm going to limit what's going to happen. Just a third of things are going to be wrecked. This is good news. It means he's limiting his judgment. And remember, people, God's anger is not like yours or mine. Yes, one of God's emotions is anger, rightfully so. But he doesn't do like you and me. He doesn't lose it and just go crazy. He doesn't do that. This third tells us it's limited. Next, God's anger isn't just limited. It's always just. Over and over again, whether he used the Hebrews to discipline the Egyptians or Persia to discipline Babylon. He's using the Romans to discipline the first century right now. But it, it's going to be just. It's not going to be overkill. A and he has to do this. Honest time now. If God didn't act against these injustices, by his own standards, could we call him good? No. Put it back on you and me. If you and I am not angry at injustice, can we call ourselves good people? No. This is why God has to act, why he has to bring justice. But here's the good news about it, too. His justice, and a final thing about these judgment texts, it's meant to redirect us. This is really important. A lot of people read about God in the Old Testament, and they think, or in Revelation, they think, boy, he sounds so wrathful and uptight and crazy. That's not his point. His goal is to bring us to repentance. He wants to heal us. He's saying, come to me so I can heal you. That road is bondage and torment where you're going. And so I'm going to use some judgment to wake you up, to turn you back to where life is. That is his intent in all of these judgments. And he has to go to seemingly incredible lengths. I mean, look at your notes. Revelation 9.20 says, and this is amazing to me. It says, after all these judgments, the rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols. And again, they did not repent of their murders and sorceries and fornication and theft. They're being judged and they're saying, sorry, God, I want to stick it out. We're staying here. He's trying to redirect them. And this was an awful time. 
Jews were killing Jews. Romans were killing even more Christians and Jews. The slaughter was countrywide in these times. And finally, God says, enough. You think the Old Testament God is impatient? No. He sometimes lets these things go on for hundreds of years. Jesus, by contrast, is far more quick to act. He makes a proclamation in around 30 AD, and 40 years later, Jerusalem goes down. God of the Old Testament, he makes a declaration, and usually a couple hundred years go by before he acts. He's not a wrathful, petty God. He's long-suffering to say, I'm trying to redirect you. I'm trying to redirect you. Come back to the life. That's his, that's his goal. Because the sad truth is that we humans, this is true of me, I'm sure it's true of you, we have a high level of pain tolerance before we're willing to change in some things, aren't we? Honest engine time. Are there things in your life, whether it's a pain or an issue or something that's off, where maybe God is saying, I'm allowing this because I love you too much to ignore you and I'm trying to draw you back. Now, let me make this clear. If you're suffering in pain or whatever or bad health, the Bible's explicitly clear. That is not because God is punishing you. Think about Job. Think about the sufferings of Jesus. Okay, if you suffer, that doesn't mean that God is after you. But God can use anything to redirect us. He loves us too much to ignore us, and he will bring us back. So question to you, to me, is there something in our lives that maybe God is trying to say, I want your attention on this. I want you to let me come in and take away this ugly thing and bring life instead. Are you willing to let me do that? Ask yourself honestly, is there something for you today? And that's something that's given in love, by the way, not condemnation. God's saying, I want to make you whole again. So justice and judgment comes. And John says, this is amazing to me. And I think that's what that image is all about. So the gold censer, the trumpets, and now the third and final image, the two witnesses. And what's the upshot of, of, of what these two are all about? It's this. Don't, people, don't give up on the gospel. Look at what the verses say here. 11, chapter 11, verse 3. And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days wearing sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Now watch this and see if you can figure out who they are. They have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague that they want. Now, 1 John uses the symbol of olive trees. What's that about? Again, got to go back to the Old Testament. In short, it's from Zechariah, and it was an image that was designed to show the people God will vindicate you, and he will get you through this. So if I'm a hearer in Revelation today, and I hear about the olive branches, I'm going to go, whew, just like in Zechariah's day, we were vindicated. And then he uses another symbol, the lampstands. Well, remember from the seventh series, what did the lampstands represent? They were symbolic of the seven churches. And what was their point? They're to be a light to the world. They're to be witnesses. That means sharing the truth of Christ to a needy and dark world. So what's the symbol all about? It's saying Christians, 
We're to be a light to the world with our deeds and everything we can bring. And what about this number two? Is that symbolic? I think so. If you go back to the Old Testament, if you had, imagine a courtroom scene. The Old Testament was clear. You could not just bring one witness down to the stand to say, yeah, Your Honor, that guy did it. Not good enough. The Bible said you must have two witnesses to make something true before God and his standards. Had to have two. So what is this saying? Two real guys? Probably not. Why? Because the text goes on to say that people make war against them. So how do you make war against two guys? That seems like overkill. Now, maybe if the guys are Captain America and Iron Man, maybe that would be a fair fight, right? Or Superman and the Hulk, maybe that's even better. No, I think that the point is, and this is what's interesting, it says when their bodies are slain because they get killed for a time, the, the word for bodies is singular. What? Their body, the two witnesses' body lies in the street. So I think this is saying the body of witnesses, in other words, the people of God, our witness to the world is what this is talking about. I think that, <coughs> pardon me, they represent the witness of the people of God. All right, mass confession time. Speaking of sharing about Christ to others, raise your hand if you've ever, ever held back from sharing because you're afraid of opposition or rejection. Anybody? Yeah, look around. All of us, I have, for sure. It's a very normal thing. I mean, some of us feel like, well, I'll share, I'll talk about Jesus if I'm guaranteed a good response. But if I sense opposition or rejection or even like persecution, forget it, I'm out. Well, I think that this is in this text because John of Revelation is telling the church then, look, you're in a tough time, but God is still calling you to be a light to the world. Now, sometimes that's with words and sometimes that's with deeds. Pick your spot, but you still need to be a light. The world needs it. Revelation eleven nine 9 gives us more to the storyline. Look what it says. It says, for three and a half days, these are after the witnesses are killed, every, people from every tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate by sending each other gifts because the two prophets that had tormented them who live on the earth are now gone. What's going on here? Well, I think this is what's going on. When the truth is told about Jesus, when light goes into dark places, if you're in the dark, that's tormenting because you don't want your dark little thing upset by the light of truth. And so when they can get rid of the witness of the church, people will be like, yes, we can celebrate now the darkness because they're out of the way. I think that's what's going on here. And yet we're still called to go on, even in the midst of martyrdom. And here's the good news now. This is not the end of the story. There's a turn now towards something positive. This leads to our next point, which is essentially don't give up, people. Yes, it was true that Christians were slaughtered in mass in this first century scene. Yes, it's true that they were at times crucified or butchered. It was awful. But let me tell you a story of how God intervened. From 66 to 70, Rome is rampaging through Israel village to village, town to town, leaving death everywhere. And they're approaching the final coup de grace, the, 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 the capital of Jerusalem. But before they got there and were able to close off the city, allowing none to escape, 
This little bit of history has come down to us that's absolutely remarkable from the historian Eusebius. He said this, but the people of the church in Jerusalem had been commanded by a revelation vouchsafed to approved men there before the war, watch this now, to leave the city and dwell in a certain town of Perea called Pella. And history tells us the Christians obeyed that little prophecy and escaped. They made it out. What's the point? The point is sometimes God rescues you in this life. And sometimes he doesn't. Now, we're all going to die, men and women. That's a, that's a given, unless you're alive when Christ comes again. So the question is whether you're rescued in this life temporarily or we must give our life for Christ in this life. The question is, are we trusting in God enough to not let our witness be diminished? That's what this world needs. And it's so worth doing it. And finally, now they get their reward. The final verse says, verse 12, Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. Oh, can you imagine if you'd seen your friends martyred or you were about to die and all of a sudden you hear, Come up here. Yes, your job is done. Good job, faithful servant. It's over. You're, you're rescued finally once and for all. Men and women, if you're in Christ, one day you're going to hear, Come up here. You will have done it for Christ's sake. That's the reward we look forward to. So what does this mean? It means back to the beginning, if your child is wayward, if your marriage is on the rocks, if your health never gets better, if you just can't find stable work, it means that God is not caught off guard. It means God is in charge. He's in control. And he's going to be the victor of history. You know, if you were a Christian in the first century, you might go, I don't see it happening. The Romans aren't going anywhere soon. But you know what? History does tell us this. In the first century, the Christian movement was pretty much snuffed out. But 300 years later, that same Roman Empire that was snuffing out Christians, guess what? 300 years later, they had a Christian emperor. Yeah, that's right. Because God is the victor of history. So Christian, don't let your witness go down. Don't be fearful. In life or death, God's going to win. And he wants you and me, get this, he wants you and me to join him in being lights to the world. That's what this is about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot thank you enough for how we can have assurance that no amount of bad guys, no amount of global tyrants, no amount of just even day-to-day, here-and-now events in our own lives, no amount of negative whatever is going to be the end of us. Thank you, God, that whether we are doing well or we suffer, it is not for lost. If we have wounds, you can make them trophies. No matter what, Father, you say to us, I am the victor of history. Stay with me. Don't give up. And we will, as co-intercessors, 
write the story of this world according to Jesus's authorship. Thank you, Jesus, that we get to be a part of that. It's amazing. Give each one here the courage today and the encouragement to know that you care about every last thing in their life. You want us to tell you about it, and you want us to enjoin you in making a difference in this world. Thank you for that privilege, Jesus. We are forever grateful. Amen.